Dr. Karen Stewart is breaking new ground in SUNY Oneonta's communications department by teaching something that some people believe is the nemesis of learning, video games. Karen is this week's guest on Class Talkers, and I'm your host, Tim Welch. So Karen, um, in many ways, you and I are both interested in this because it's a mass media phenomenon that's relatively young. Video games, I can remember playing Pong 100 years ago, maybe (laughs) only 40 years ago, uh, and saying, this is so rudimentary, but it's so cool. Oh yeah, I remember when my parents brought Pong home. We set it up, my big brother set it up on the TV for us and we were just mesmerized by it. What is this thing? A black and white phenomenon. Yeah. And of course that became a part of a lot of early personal computers as they all had some games that could be a little chewing gum for the mind perhaps. But now it seems like it's a real serious business that I read computer games sell more cartridges and consoles than box office tickets at the movie. It's starting to become one of the most profitable mass media globally, not just in the United States, but globally. I think the number was in 2016 that they estimated uh, 25 billion games were sold globally. Wow. And the profit revenues uh, globally right now are in past $120 billion. So absolutely, it's got a huge market share and it's got a big impact on media. And it's not just the United States, but in fact, Asia is perhaps one of the biggest places. Uh, I've I've been aware of WeChat, where you Mm -hmm. can certainly play it in China that way. And in South Korea, it's a spectator sport. They're estimating that China is going to surpass the United States in video game sales and revenue next year. So absolutely, the Chinese market is huge. And of course, Japan, all kinds of uh, companies got established there. And a lot of the big gaming franchises that we play, you know, 20, 30 years later come from Japan. So they're still... Nintendo. Yeah, they're still a significant contributor to the global market. So what stimulates your research in this area? That's a good question. Um, A whole bunch of things, actually. It seems like the more I learn, then the more I discover, then the more I want to learn. And the more people seem to be doing really awesome things with video game studies. And so I want to meet those people and do more things with them. Um, So it started out really small. It was just me playing a game that I didn't really know what it was and having a really good time playing it and wanting to learn more about it. And that's how I discovered I was playing a visual novel. And then I started learning about the fan communities that were attached to these games. And it's just gone up from there. So this has many layers to it. And I've certainly noticed the excitement in your classroom from your own students. Is this an adolescent phenomenon, or does it go beyond that? (laughs) It goes well beyond that. I think we have these weird stereotypes in our culture about what a gamer is. And I think there's sort of like three that float around. There's the, the like the ten-year-old boy that won't go outside and play, or the twenty-something uh, guy in his mother's basement that hasn't grown up, or the girl who's on her phone all the time and she's not talking to people. She's doing everything through her, you know, through the through the phone or the tablet. To that extent, it's an antisocial behavior, yeah, but or it's an a, antisocial stereotype. Yeah, an antisocial stereotype, and it's just not true. I think the average. I think the last stuff I read said the average age of gamers. In the United States is 34 um, and it's a generational thing now so we've got parents who play with their children so we've got you know, little ones and bigs playing together uh, middle-aged women is one of the largest or fastest growing demographics for playing video games in the United States so there's one stereotype that we can 
bash right off the top, and that is it's not a an adolescent boy phenomenon. No, it is not. And when I teach my classes, I have every kind of student at the door wanting to take it. It's men, it's women, it's uh, cross-cultural, it's exchange students, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit of everybody. Um, and it's funny, we have this weird shared language now of gaming that they all have in common. The language? How has the language been changed by this phenomenon? Or how are people influenced to change their communication? Well, I think part of it is we think of games as being um, something you do yourself, like you just sit and play a game. But so many of the games now are actual um, interactive with people around the world, and there's sort of almost a, like, a, like a social media component with them. Mm. So we see how people talk to each other through their games. They build friendships through their games. Um, sometimes my students will say that they have a best friend that's going to school across the country, and they go into their game world, and that's how they hang out for an afternoon. So they operate with an audio headset. Yeah, or, or texting or, you know, through the gameplay. Um, but yeah, it's just seen as another another mode of connecting with people and interacting. And uh, what have you learned from that that feeds your research? Well, the things that I look at are um, a subset of visual novel video games called Atomi, and they're romance-based games. They're like choose-your-own-adventure stories from the 80s, the books that we mm. used to read, but they're video game versions of it. Um, and so what I look at are the games and how they're made and what they say about romance and relationships. Um, but I also study the fandoms that go with the games. And it's a lot of young women who hang out in these fandoms together and talk about the games, but they also talk about bigger issues like what does it mean to date somebody who's not nice to you and what do you look for in a partner? Um, and so there's a lot of like relationship talk that happens there, but also because these games are relatively easy to build, they start teaching each other how to build video games. And so they start creating the kinds of stories that they want to play as well. And so we get this multifaceted gaming experience um, happening. And for me, whenever young women are finding their voice and they're learning new skills and they're involved in technology, it's like a triple win. Yes, I, I've always felt as though uh, that's been one of the uh, downsides in uh, computer science is that relatively few women are involved in it and companies are uh, have been criticized for not hiring enough women, but I've been told that something over 80% of the classes are filled by men. I, yeah, it's, the, it's kind of that sort of STEM problem that we often see where at some point young women are discouraged from following you know, following their, their dreams and going into those fields. Um, but I think if you look at the indie market and you look at indie, uh, indie game platforms, you'll see that the people who maybe don't find their footing in the industry or don't feel welcome that way, they're doing a lot of really interesting and innovative work in the indie circles. And if you start taking that into account, you'll see more women's voices, but also more voices from marginal communities. Now, when you say indie circles, what do you mean by that? The independently generated video games? Yeah, so you've got like levels of game production. So you've got the big companies with the big budgets that can put out what they call AAA game titles. So these are your big franchises. These are the ones with the really elaborate graphics. Call and, of Duty. Yeah, something like that. Um, but then you've got little startup companies and smaller companies where people band together to build games. Um, and they have their own areas on the internet where they uh, find each other and contract with each other to build games and find partners. And there's platforms like Itch 
that um, people host their games on and sell them. And that's where a lot of that really interesting work is happening. Is it your takeoff on Twitch? Uh, no, I don't think they're related, but uh, yeah, because I think Itch.io was out well before Twitch was sort of a, a big thing. But you're into Twitch. I'm aware of Twitch, and I'm aware of uh, the fact that video gaming has become a spectator sport. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Amazon owns Twitch because Amazon also owns AWS, which is a cloud computing platform on which a lot of these gamers can broadcast their actual live games. Yeah. Uh, We're starting to see professional video game players make salaries equivalent to professional football players now. That's great. Yeah, it's great. I know that's really weird for some people. It's like, well, why would you watch people you know, play a game, but that just shows the growth of this as a mass media where people enjoy people who can play really well and they enjoy the communities that form around games and sort of that interactive component where they can, you know, support somebody or cheer somebody on or even, you know, learn some tricks for playing themselves and improving their own gameplay. A lot of our students watch Twitch. And it's a convention that we have to assume is as legitimate as going into a theater and watching people make believe they're somebody else. Yeah, or watching basketball players run around on the court. We're not playing basketball when we watch basketball players. We can still love their athleticism. We can still love how people play games. And that to me is just uh, such a wonderful thing to think about. We can love the way people play games. What what an exciting thing to be able to say in the 21st century. Well, of course, I've always been interested in competition of a variety of different types. Most of it traditional athletic competition, basketball, baseball, football. But This is a new kind of competition that um, heretofore hasn't been related to athletic skill. Yeah, it's a different kind of skill. Um, You know, if you get back to why people play games, we uh, like competition, we like challenges, uh, we like puzzles, um, we like to um, have stories, you know, interact with stories. There's all these different reasons that people have played games for millennia. And so when we're watching people play games or we're playing them ourselves, that's what we're tapping into is sort of that thrill of, you know, the problem solving and the immersion in the world or, you know, the, figuring out the puzzles. And uh, I don't know, we can, we, can, we can have fun doing that ourselves and have fun watching other people do that too. And back to the romance concept, the notion that people want to create additional involved narratives and have the ability to create it now so that others can appreciate it. Is that the kind of uh, gamification that's occurring? Is that the kind of game building, almost like a sim, where people are building new narratives that uh, might involve romance? Well, I think you've got three things there that you just mentioned. So gamification is a little bit different. I think that's where we take something that isn't normally accomplished through playing a game and try to turn it into a game to make it a little more fun or memorable or engaging. Um, Game building relies on the same kinds of thinking that we would do, say, with like video game design thinking. What components go into a game to create that feeling of immersion in that world that makes us want to stay there and play that game. And then you've got, you know, your third component there where you're talking about um, sims and creating what you want. Um, you know, Minecraft is huge, right? right? That's probably 
it's not exactly a sim, but it's, it is in that people can go into a sandbox space and start building the kind of world that they want to see or recreating parts of the world we're in and into this place. So yeah, we've got layers of what's happening with video game, video games in our culture, not, and then video game studies is looking at all these different aspects of what games are doing, and that's why it's very rich and very interdisciplinary and involving lots of people thinking about games in lots of cool ways. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Fortnite and the phenomenon that that represents. Yeah. And yet it's a relatively simple game when it comes to the graphics in it. And uh, again, it's a game that people can play in and um, uh, with one another, communicating with one another in teams and uh, taking on personas. And yet it makes money not by selling the game, but by selling various elements that people <laughs> might want to... Uh, dress themselves with yeah. inside the game. It's a yeah. fascinating business model as well as a game phenomenon. Yeah, and it's under a lot of scrutiny because on the one hand, there's ways of um, customizing the game experience that feels like rewards and payoffs for good gameplay, and people like that. Um, but then there's a part of it that feels kind of like gambling. You pay so much money and a chest will open and maybe you'll get something and maybe you won't. And we're starting to see some of the first uh, gaming regulations uh, come into play, legislation about gaming, uh, because of these loot boxes and kind of that experience of, uh, is it part of a game or is it a money-making, <laughs> a chance money-making kind of thing? A way to take candy from children. Yeah, exactly. That brings me to what I'm personally concerned about is the fact that this is kind of like a, a dopamine compulsion loop for some people who don't know how to manage their time, mm. that this becomes such a seductive compulsion to be involved in the game, not unlike problem gambling. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's, that's, it's hard to say where the healthy levels of gameplay are because they really can be different for lots of different people. Um, you know, if the game isn't interfering with the things you have to do in real life, you're probably okay. <laughs> uh, but if you're missing classes and you're missing exams, you're staying up all night, and so your body's, you're not taking care of your body so that you can do well and the other things you need to do, those are probably the points when you need to look at it. Um, but we do see places um, that are creating, I don't, I don't see them so much video game specific, but kind of the whole, we're addicted to our phones and we have games on our phones, and we have this sort of always-on thing that always has access to these kinds of uh, interactions, that those kinds of support places are showing up to help people better manage those experiences and the time they're putting into it. So you're not concerned about it? Not overly. Um, the vast majority of students that I come in contact with, we talk about you know what, what's healthy levels of gameplay in class, and they're doing well. You know, they play their games and that's their outlet and that's where they relieve stress and that's where they meet their friends and they're still doing well in their classes and they're, you know, they got part-time jobs and have real relationships yeah. and <laughs> all those and good things. And life goes on and yeah. it, it doesn't mean that it's a, a, a new collection of zombies that's being created with Generation Z. Yeah, exactly. You know, and they'll say, well, my gameplay is more social and interactive than like my uncle who sits on the couch and watches watch sports all weekend. Good point. So, Yeah. Good point. And to that extent, it's actually a new form of communication because uh, there's, there's this thing in between them that they're talking about, this series of screens, but they're communicating, usually um, audio-only communication about it. But in, in Twitch, uh, you can actually see the people involved, too, and perhaps have a conversation with them. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's multifaceted communication. So it's 
it's mediated because we have screens and computers and technology that is creating the interface and the experience, but there's old school like talking on the telephone by talking through headphones, but then there's a live chat, and so that's got its own conventions too. And then groups can form out, you know, inside of the game or outside of the game, and sometimes they'll start their own social media platform in another place and, you know, create a club or a guild. Uh, so it's it's where we where we look at young people playing games and we don't see much happening if we look at them. When we peel back that top layer, there's all kinds of of interaction with media and people that's going on under the surface. I know you've been working to try to create interdisciplinary courses related to gaming. Tell me a little bit about the work you've done in that. Yeah. So. Um, when people found out I was doing video game research on campus, they started appearing <laughs> in my email and in my office. Uh, and it turns out we have a lot of people on campus that are interested in, in video games in lots of different ways. Um, so we started looking at the possibility of offering something like a certificate or a minor in video game design that would be interdisciplinary and we could have faculty from all these different departments on campus contribute to it. So we're looking at like English for write, learn, uh, for courses like learning how to write stories with multiple endings, mm. music for scoring video games, art for the game design uh, assets, uh, designing game assets, so things like character design and background design, media studies, so we look at the industry and we look at the culture that's attached to video games. Um, and that's sort of where we started. Oh, in computer science, to learn how to do the scripting that a lot of these uh, game engines use to put the components together. And then history decided they wanted to come check everything out, and then education got involved. And so we've got seven departments right now and two deans, and we've been meeting um, throughout the semester to talk about what a truly interdisciplinary game design program could look like for our campus. And it's really exciting because you see all these different approaches to games and all these different people that have a fascination and an interest in it. And we know that we have students all across campus in these different programs that could be united under a program like this. Well, this is the perfect way in which we can create a truly interdisciplinary course that attracts students and at the same time involves students in all of these no, nobody ever thought they needed to have history anymore. <laughs> exactly. And we, we've talked about how do we integrate history courses into a game design program. Uh, but so many games are historical retellings. Sure. And it's about immersing yourself into a time period and exploring that time period as part of the gameplay. And getting the costumes right, getting the dialogue right, getting the situations correct, making sure there's no politically incorrect modern uh, element to the warfare that you might be describing. Or if there is, understand that you're doing that. <laughs> so because some that's what game can do as well. It can be fantasy or it can be an exploration of what if. But if you're going to build those kinds of games, you need to understand what you're playing with and how the audiences might react to that uh, new history or alternative history approach. How do you think games can be incorporated in the classroom? That is a really good question. Um, we're seeing a lot of... Um, administrative interest in gamifying things related to education and learning, um, both for like faculty training and for students' experiences in the classroom. And I asked my students about this. I said, well, what do you think if we turned our, this whole course into a game? And they mostly roll their eyes at me <laughs> when I say that. And there's something about being forced to play a game that makes a game no longer fun. Hmm. Um, but 
we do know from the research that when we're active and we're interactive and we're problem solving, we tend to learn and retain better than if it's very passive. Uh, the experience is very passive. So I am sort of on the fence about gamification of things because I see some value, but I also see there's like it's trendy <laughs> to talk about yeah. it. But it, there is a way of perhaps creating a level of competition or a specific goal that could be attained here that could create an artificial inducement to want to learn something. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier about, you, you know, you've, you've always been interested in this idea of competition. Um, and instead of it being a competition, say, for a grade, it is an, a competition for status or for mm. achievements or problem solving. It could be a way to reward different um, learning outcomes that could be really useful. It could be a way of learning facts, historical facts perhaps, that someone would never really think was that important unless it was turned into a, a game. Sure. And storytelling is powerful. You know, Walter Fisher says we're storytelling creatures. That's how we talk to each other. That's how we learn our family histories and our cultural histories. Um, and so when we do engage in story, we have characters that we can identify with and relate to, and that helps us think about the world uh, empathetically beyond ourselves. And that seems to be where professional video games have gone, is to create narratives and narratives that might have more than one ending and having solutions that might be provided um, in ways that are developed by the players. Yeah. So one of the things in uh, our class, what we do is we have to determine when we're building a game, how much are you going to script out and how much you're going to allow the players to create on their own, the experience. Um, and both games can be great. You can, you can play a game that has a really solid script and you follow through it because it still creates immersion, um, but different ones will be more open and those are different kinds of gaming payoffs. Um, and so there's some creative choices in there on how you approach it. I remember reading about and actually seeing that the U.S. Army created a game uh, in order to attract people to its website for recruiting purposes. Uh, America's Soldier, I believe it was called, and uh, it was a game on the U.S. Army's uh, recruiting website that was intended to get young men in particular to come to it and uh, see what it might be like to be in the Army by playing a soldier. Yeah. Uh, you know, RPGs, role-playing games, that's what they do. They let you step into a world, step into somebody else's shoes for a little bit and explore. Um, yeah, I think we're going to see, I, I mean, I, I think we're kind of in a, a, a really wonderful golden age of video games right now. It's, uh, you know, it's global, it's active, it's very creative. You know, we've got different kinds of gaming experiences you can have in your home. Like, so when I was young, we all had just the Atari. <laughs> and that was kind of the only option you had. And now there's, you know, all these different platforms and our PCs and we've got mobile games. We've got all these different layers of experiences with it. And we um, have much better monitors than ever before. Oh, yeah. You know, and so we, we haven't even really begun to figure out everything a game can even be or do yet. This is still new territory. I mean, the first video game is technically, I guess, from the 1960s. I suppose you know, so. That's kind of I think where they say the starting point is we're only talking about a couple of decades in development you know film we've got you know 150 years you know photography we've got you know several hundred years we don't we don't know where games are going yet they're just uh, they're just taking off 
And I would think that there are things that are being learned by video games. There are things that are being exercised by video games. I've read where many of those people who participate in video games learn quick decision-making and uh, sequential decision-making and making decisions that they have to live by. I always said I don't learn anything when I succeed, I only learn when I screw up, and then I have to analyze why it was sure. that that happened. Yeah, and I learned from that. That's perfect. That's exactly why I study the romance games, because um, when you play these games, you have the good ending where everything works out happily ever after, but you can have the bad ending where that relationship fails. And so what you see the players do is they, they think about these choices that they make in the game and what will be the outcomes and the consequences. Um, and does this lead to the kind of relationship I'm okay with or is this not a good thing? Um, and then what's really exciting to me is they take that conversation offline well, out of the game and go to the fandom hubs and continue that conversation. And so they're still talking to each other about how did you play this game and how did you feel about this and what did you learn and what did you like? And then that conversation inspires like the next round of game development. So yeah, absolutely. I think um, we, I call it romantic agency, but hmm. building those decision-making skills and finding your voice and what you like through those gaming experiences. It could also be romantic therapy. <laughs> it could be, yeah, if you're coming from it that way. Um, but a lot of the people playing the games I study are young, and so they're just sort of entering dating scenarios, and they're just sort of figuring out you know, who they are and who they want to be with in life. And so there's a lot of uh, safe exploration that can happen through gameplay. Uh, that makes I've been teaching here for 15 years, and 15 years ago there was a stigma associated with uh, finding uh, a romantic partner online. Yeah. <laughs> That's no longer the case. No, not at all. In fact, you'd be silly to go and meet someone without checking out their Facebook page and more. Absolutely. Um, and we've got Gen Z that's been, their whole life is digital. They're born in the 2000s. And so none of this is strange. This is very natural to have this technology and to have online personas and to have mediated communication with people literally around the world at any given time. Um, and that's very different than how you and I grew up. We didn't have those no. kinds of communication channels to do things like that. I told my students how difficult it was when I was in college for me to communicate with my parents. I had to get 12 quarters together to put them <laughs> into the into the uh, payphone in order to call them. And, and um, communication by voice was infrequent and expensive. It was very expensive. I tell the story of how if you needed a ride, when I was in college, and if you needed a ride, you would put a note card up on a bulletin board, and somebody would find you, and you'd go in their car and go get a ride with them. And they looked mortified, like, how do you know that's safe? And I said, well, you get into Ubers, don't you? <laughs> and they're like, well, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of the same human needs, but just the way we go about it is more reliant on these technologies that we've now created. So where would you like to see this go? Where would, you, where would your research take you next? Well, right now I'm working with stu students to build our own video game. Oh. Uh, I'm a big believer of learning by doing. And I had never built a video game before, and I didn't want to just study them from the outside. I wanted to study them from the inside out. Um, so a big goal for the next year, year and a half, is to complete the game. Um, we've got character designs, and we've got a basic narrative, and we've got some theme music, and um, some parts that students have either made themselves or they've worked with me to contract a professional, and we've worked with that professional to create that gaming component. So um, in other words, that 
the uh, coding would be done by a professional, but the concept would be developed by the class. Yeah, and it's mostly because you really can't expect an undergraduate to stick to a project more than a semester because things change every semester for them. So everything that they can do, they do, and if it's something that's going to take longer than a semester, we contract somebody and then we do the, the contract management part of it on that side. So big goal is to finish the game and get it out there. Um, the next level of research, um, I'm hoping to do some writing that combines uh, what we talked about here with the romance games and what we're learning and also some how-to materials and think about more ways to get young women involved in building their own games. Um, and then I think the third part is really um, getting into the pedagogies, really getting into the program development and thinking about what, it's, what it really takes to have a truly interdisciplinary program that can speak to all these components of a game. Media today is, is convergent. We're, they're not distinct like they once were. Media today is very interdisciplinary in our approaches to creating them um, and really pushing our learning institutions to reflect the state of media is a pretty important goal, I think. Well, we're speaking on a weekend when the new Avengers program, Endgame, comes out uh, uh, as a movie, and it seems to me that that's just a big video game. <laughs> well, Marvel is a perfect example of convergent media. They're operating by they're they're operating their franchise by creating content for all kinds of different media. So they've got the graphic novels and comic books and movies and television shows and video games and all of these things that work together to create buy-in into this experience. Um, and I think we're just going to see more and more of that. Um, we don't have the shared culture we once had where everybody sits down at 8 o'clock and watches the same television show. Um, but when we have media operating on all these different layers, then people get excited by those experiences. And that's where the shared community starts coming back in. I'm glad that you're harnessing uh, the excitement that our students have and providing us a roadmap academically to follow it. Yeah, they're great. Um, as soon as they know I'm doing anything, they start showing up. Um, and I think that's something as educators we need to pay attention to. Uh, young people are sitting in their bedrooms building video games already because all, everything you need to make a video game is available for free online. Um, and so we need to meet students at that space, at that place, and then elevate them and the way that they're thinking about media in more complex ways. Um, but it's not like, again, when I was younger where it was really expensive or, or difficult to have access to equipment to make things. You've got a phone on you right now that mostly you can make anything you want to make. Good so point. now it's about how do we take that and, and turn it into something more than just um, a quick little hobby or a pastime thing that you do. And of course, on this campus, we have already dealt in many ways with uh, making radio programs and podcasts and making video programs and television. Mm -hmm. So making video games would seem to be a logical extension of that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it ties right into where our, our students are coming from. The, you know, they, they watch Netflix, they, they watch Twitch, they watch YouTube, um, they build, they create their own apps, they build their own mini games. Um, they're already really savvy about media in a lot of ways. Um, so our job is to take what they know and help them think about it in larger cultural contexts and to think about things like the media industries that they want to work in. Um, and really, how do you make good products and put them out there that you can stand by, that you can uh, uh, 
you know, feel like you, you re, that you're respected for the work that you do. Thank you for describing this new mass media landscape for us today. Thank you for visiting with me. It's fun to talk about. Great. Good. Dr. Karen Stewart has been my guest on this episode of Class Talkers. I'm your host, Tim Welch, and feel free to share this content with anyone and to share your comments as well.